That legacy just keeps going on and on and on. I wonder when we'll ever get to the front of the sanctuary. Good morning. Welcome to worship. So glad that uh, so many of you sprang forward. Can we bring those house lights up just a little bit, please? Thank you. I am here to build on last week. And, of course, last week I, I poked at the idea of making an impact, right? We want to make a difference. We want to make an impact, whatever that means, right? That's too vague. So we're answering four questions. The who and the what and the where and the how of your legacy. To get more specific about how your time on this earth is going to express itself for the benefit of others. This morning we're going to be talking about the what question. The what question is a question of passion. Passion. Passion is a word that's used in a lot of different contexts. Some people may say, I have a passion for taking out the garbage, or a passion for, uh, I have a passion for cooking, right? I think most people who have a, say they have a passion for cooking really have a passion for eating, but I, that's just a suspicion on my part. No, a passion is, is, is bigger than, than just a, 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 uh, a, just a, a, bigger than an affinity for something. A passion is a drive to be part of something bigger than you. It's a drive. I think everybody has a drive to be part of something bigger than ourselves. The word passion uh, refers, of course, to, uh, to Jesus' work on the cross. Mel Gibson did a movie on this. Uh, you know, he, he told the story from, uh, from the, the point of view of, of just Jesus' difficult moments. Passion comes from the, in that sense, passion comes from the, the Latin, patio, which means to suffer. And so out of, out of that, that experience of suffering, you can begin to see how deeply it goes that we have a drive. We almost suffer in order to be part of something bigger than we are. Now, you may have an objection this morning, like, you know, all right, I appreciate being thoughtful and reflective and thinking about this big question of meaning, but you know what? I've got all these practical concerns waiting for me tomorrow, right? And I've got, I've got things I've got to decide. I've got bills I have to pay. I've got, I've got April 15th coming up. Oh, gosh, he had to bring that up. And you know, I, I think a, a lot of us uh, get bogged down in the practical concerns of life and we lose touch, we, we disconnect from what really drives us, what's really motivating us. The problems that you face tomorrow and the next week, that particular set of problems that you're dealing with this week, will go away. And like, you know, at the plaza, when you take a... A, a plate off of that spring-loaded plate stacker, you know, and the next one pops up, then you're going to have a whole new set, right? <laughs> you're always going to be dealing with some practical set of problems, right? And so let's take a few moments to think about what really motivates us. 
What really drives? A, a guy named Daniel Pink wrote a book called Drive. The subtitle is The Surprising Truth That Motivates Us. Drive. He talks about autonomy and mastery and purpose. That rather than the old stick and the carrot idea of what, what motivates people around you or what motivates you, the idea that there's something that you're just, you're just trying to get to and grab, that there is, there's something bigger that really drives us. Autonomy and mastery and purpose. Autonomy, the idea that, that we're, we, we have some measure, uh, uh, increasing measure of independence. Mastery, the idea, you know, if you think about I have a passion for cooking, I think there, there's something to that, like the idea that you're going to, to, to master something, right? The pursuit of excellence. Purpose. The great sense of significance and meaning that, that really is the, the, the driving force behind everything or underneath everything that you do. That's, that's really what we're getting at when we're talking about passion. Passion is a drive to be part of something bigger than we are. This morning we're going to look at, at a guy who had a passion. And it's a bigger passion than at first you may see evident in the passage I'm going to read. I'm going to read the opening verses of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia. And this, this happened somewhere around the, the 6th century B.C. After the temple had been destroyed and the Israelites were, uh, were exiled. You think of the exile as more of like a brain dream, a, a force, forcing out of, of the talent and of the leadership of the people of Israel. Um, much of the wall had been around Jerusalem had been destroyed. The gates had been burned. And here is, is Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah, one of these these great talented people who emerges and, and who gets tapped and who, although he is from the Jewish tradition, is in this, this, this Persian place of power. Not, not just a cupbearer, not just somebody who's supposed to, to, to take a sip of the wine before he gives it, gives it to the king. This is, this is somebody who is a trusted inv- advisor to the king. And the king begins to see Nehemiah's passion to see the walls of Jerusalem restored, to see the identity of the people of Israel restored. And for some reason, King Artaxerxes sees this as a win-win, and he gives Nehemiah the permission to go and to lead that effort. Let's take a look. As we consider what what fuels us? Question today, what, what fuels you? But not only that, why should you be able to identify what fuels you? We're going to look at this passage and, and look at a couple of reasons just how Nehemiah shows us that it really brings to the surface the need for us to know exactly what our passion is. To be able to pinpoint it, be able to put your finger on, this is my passion. Why should you know that? Let's take a look. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year as I was in the Susa capital, that Hanani, one of the brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And you think, I'm totally lost. What's going on here? I don't know all these names. This is crazy. These people and places. But just think of it this way. Think of how he's starting this book, marking time according to the Jewish calendar. Think of the, these people in exile who, who, who have, have only their calendar to identify them as a people. They no longer have the walls of Jerusalem. They no longer are gathered together and have, have, have a sense of, of their nation state. And, and, and so, so the, the heritage that's called out in these first few verses that may lose you or, or the places or the, the time of the year, it, it all calls up this Jewish identity, this Israel identity. He goes on, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates, its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, now think of the word passion and suffering. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with all those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. To make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you help us to delight in your word as in you? And may your word not only change our thoughts, that our ideas may be transformed, but change our hearts to lead changed lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple reasons why you need to know your passion. The what question is a question of passion. Passion is to be is the drive to be part of something bigger. What is what is your particular avenue into that bigger thing 
that God is doing in your midst? What is that bigger thing? A couple of reasons why you should know your passion. The first one is this. Passion gives us a positive way forward. It gives us something, a picture to aim at. It gives us a, a motivating purpose that is positive, that's for and not against. Passion is, is a descriptor of what you're headed towards, not, not just what you're headed away from. Your passion is your motivating purpose that is a positive way forward. Nehemiah's passion was for the remnant. This remnant, this idea that there, are, there is a people defining Israel, defining the kingdom of God. His passion was for those people. He had something that he was for, not just something he was against. Right? So even as, as somebody who was sitting in this, this, this place of power in another land in Persia, his passion for his people was a compelling vision, even for someone who would not even identify with his nation. You know, guilt, guilt can be a powerful motivator too. Rather than being something you know, that we're for that's driving us, guilt can drive us. And guilt is, is effective. <laughs> it's, it's an effective tool to, to motivate people. Parents, you know this very well, right? And sometimes it may be appropriate to get people to run a short distance in order to get something done, but guilt over the long period of time is corrosive and it shrinks us. That's why, that's why guilt is supposed to take us to the cross and we're supposed to leave it there. It's not supposed to drive our giving. It's not supposed to drive our obedience. It's supposed to drive us to the cross, period. Guilt is a powerful motivator, but it's a corrosive force when we hold on to it. I was, uh, I was in Atlanta yesterday and I was driving around. I uh, was up there for a family event and... Um, and I drove past a church, a mainline church, and it had several banners, and each of the banners represented a different hot-button cause of today. It was kind of like saying, hey, world, we're, uh, we're relevant. Please come in, uh, and uh, we are for these things. Actually, what it came across to me was we're against, we're against the current administration of the United States. That's how it came across to me. Now, you think, oh gosh, he's getting political. No, I'm not. Well, yes, I am, and no, I'm not. I'm not getting partisan, but I am getting political because politics affects our lives, and it is a spiritual issue to weigh in politically, not in a partisan way. So let me give you the uh, particular example that, that was jarring to me. Refugees are welcome here. That's one of the banners. Refugees are welcome here. Now, as Christians, we ought to be people who are for refugees, right? <laughs> Isaiah 58. I mean, we are all about 
welcoming refugees. We ought to be. We ought to be leading the charge in welcoming refugees. But it seems to me that sometimes our causes become an end in of themselves. It seems to me that, that sometimes our cause becomes disconnected from the bigger picture that really drives us. It seems to me that sometimes our causes justify us. They become something merely human. They become a way that we can say, I'm better than those guys down the street. They become a way of saying, I am justified because I am on the right side of history. Have you heard all this before? There's a great piece in Wall Street Journal uh, by, by Shelby Steele. Shelby Steele talks about how some of our causes have replaced religion. They've replaced our faith in justifying us because we feel guilty. We think of America as just winning the lottery. We look at the rest of the world, we think, I'm an American, I won the lottery, I feel guilty that there are some people who aren't American. And so instead of thinking of an ideal that is America, instead of thinking of the larger picture that, that makes America, America, instead of thinking of the ideals that need to be preserved, protected, guarded, championed, we simply use our causes to make us better than other people because we feel guilty. Guilt is a powerful motivator, but sometimes it, it can skew our perspective on the issues that we need to be clear about. We need to be clearly in favor of the poor wanderer, of the refugee. We need to have our doors open, but we also need to be champions of an ideal. We, we shouldn't just be concerned about how many Mexicans are in America or not in America. We ought to be concerned about how to get more uh, America into Mexico so that Mexico can be a great nation as well. Is anybody concerned in all of the debates? When have you ever heard somebody concerned about Mexico in the midst of all the debates? Christians ought to be able to talk about this stuff in a different way. We have two issues in the media. You're either for this issue and you're partisan on this side, or you're against this issue and you're partisan on that side. It's ridiculous. It's obnoxious. And we get sucked in. And you're getting sucked into uh, all kinds of, of, uh, of childish banter on your social media sites. You are. I see it. I see you. You're speaking out loud, people. It's a public place. Don't get sucked into this either-or binary stuff. You see, what, what was happening with Nehemiah was he was for a remnant, but he wasn't for the kingdom of Israel as an end, a human end in and of itself. And so his drive was for something. He, he even, it even says, even if they're scattered to the stars. What's he talking about there? What's he saying? Scattered to the stars? Is he just being poetic? No, he's saying that, that the, the, the nation of Israel represents something more than just a, a place on the map. It represents something more than just a time in history with walls and gates that need to be restored. It represents an ideal it re- represents something to be for that transcends time and space. And so to be a Christian is to be somebody who's for the kingdom of God in our midst. Anywhere that God reigns as king, 
That's the kingdom of God. That's what we're for. And so, yes, we're for the refugee, but not as an end in of itself to assuage our, our guilt for being Americans. We're for the refugee because we recognize that America ha- is a place of opportunity. America is a place of freedom. America is a place of high ideals. America is a place that, that wants to be a place that, that builds a world that is like this place, but not in a way that tears it down, that destroys it, that is misguided by guilt, that, that sees the world as either or. You see, Nehemiah was driven by this vision, by his passion of the kingdom of God. And he wanted to see his people restored. The walls around Jerusalem wasn't just to keep people out. It was a sense of identity. It was a, it was a, a, a structure that represented a people, a sovereign people, and their set of ideals that were guiding, guided by certain principles And so in rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah is saying, let's restore this greater ideal that on earth there will be a representation, a present, imminent, concrete representation of the transcendent kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said, aim at at, uh, heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. See, I think with, with so many of our issues, we're aiming at earth. We're not aiming at heaven. We feel, we feel pushed around. We feel polarized from, from, uh, from our neighbors because of the partisan way that the debate is framed up. Be a kingdom-minded person. Have a passion for that kingdom and know exactly what your passion is. And your drive will be for, not against. You'll win the people around you. You'll not gonna, you're not going to win a win-lose debate. You're going to win people to a win-win purpose. That's what it means to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be a passionate person. You're for, and you know what you're for. And it transcends time and place. And as a result, it speaks purpose into the nation of America, the nation of Israel. It speaks purpose in the reason why these ideals attract refugees, the reason why our ideals welcome refugees. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm after? It's not an either-or question. It's a win-win both-and question. I'm talking about America as an analogy to the kingdom of God, not as the kingdom of God. Israel as an analogy to the kingdom of God. Don't aim at America. Don't aim at Israel. Do you see, Nehemiah wasn't aiming just at Israel, at the walls of Jerusalem. He was aiming at the kingdom of God. And so if we make America an end in and of itself, if you, if you uh, uh, err on the side of, of, uh, of sort of partisan Republican partisanism, then, then you might be sort of nationalistic that makes America an end in and of itself. It 
If you're partisan on the other side, you might say, there's no reason for borders. This is an inequity in, in, in the world. And so we need to open our borders and just, and then you, you miss the transcendent ideals that make America possible. We can't just be partisan in these things. You can't get sucked into these petty, binary, either-or debates. Be a kingdom-minded person. Wherever God reigns as king, know your passion so that you know what you're for, driven for, and not against. Second, when you know your passion, when you know what you're for, you can begin to help others be directed in a positive direction as well. You can enlist others to the cause. You will, you will represent a compelling vision of the future. When you know what your passion is, when you know what you're passionate about, you know what you're for, you know what your motivating purpose is. It's like setting yourself on fire. Now, don't do it literally because you can only do that once. But you are like setting yourself on fire and, 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 and people will begin to see that you have value to add to their life. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 45 puts it this way. Adam, the first Adam, talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. First Adam is Adam, second Adam is Jesus. First Adam, Adam was a living soul. Jesus was a life-giving spirit. To be a kingdom person, to be a person of passion, is to be a life-giving spirit. To know what you're for is to add value to the the lives of the people around you. To have a legacy is to to pour in life into the people around you without draining yourself because you know what you're for, not just against. Ambition is a powerful motivator. Ambition can be a powerful motivator. See, first I I showed you how how, uh, passion can drive you. And I talked about how guilt can be the alternative to it, right? Now we're talking about how passion can help lead others and direct others. Ambition can do that too. Ambition, though, like guilt, will shrink you. It will shrink you. It will hollow you out. It will suck the life out of you. If ambition is your only driving purpose, I remember when I was I was uh, in college and I, I began to have a desire to uh, to go to seminary to to be a pastor and I I revered a couple of guys who were mentors to me and I thought there's no way that I could ever do that it must be my ambition and so I didn't give myself permission to pursue my passion. Uh, because I thought it was ambition, I questioned myself. And I read Oswald Sanders' book, uh, Spiritual Leadership, and it really helped free me from, uh, from having to be the sifter of my own motives, right? You ever get caught up just trying to figure out your motives? You just, don't, you just can't be responsible for all that. And it, and it put uh, first, a, a passage from First Timothy up against a passage from uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 45, 5 said, uh, Jeremiah 45, 5 says, Do you desire great things for yourself? Do not seek them. And yet, 1 Timothy 3 says, To aspire to be a teacher or leader or an overseer 
is a noble pursuit. You see, there's a tension between the things that, 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 that are worth going for in this world. There's a tension between the, the, the drives that we have. Sometimes our drive may be ambition. Is it ambition or passion? And sometimes it's, it's hard to know. But caution about ambition. Ambition does this. Ambition, instead of using a platform for the cause, you begin to use the cause to build your platform. Instead of using your platform, right? Your platform may be something that, 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 that you have an ability, you, you have a, a place, uh, you, you have resources, or you have a concern, and, and, and you really want... Instead of using that platform to build the cause, you begin to use other people to build your platform. I can smell the difference sometimes. Can you? I hope you can. I remember talking with somebody on the phone some years ago, and they were talking about this particular uh, leader, and I thought, I can't believe you'd be sucked in by that, but thousands and thousands are. I can't believe you'd buy that book, but thousands and thousands are. Can you see the difference between someone who is using the platform to, to, to build the cause versus using the cause to build the platform? Well, let's take a look for a minute at the civil rights movement. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm getting controversial this morning. Okay, great. Here we go. Okay, this is the one I was worried about. <clears throat> Martin Luther King, an inspiration. Absolutely one of the most powerful, m- one of the most noble citizens of America, of American history. A legacy that has been taken in two different directions. One direction by a guy named John Perkins, who I admire. John Perkins, uh, an American, African-American uh, writer, author, great leader. You see, John Perkins, when he speaks about the inequities of economics and race in our country, he speaks about it as when one people are diminished, it diminishes us all. That gets me going. You see? That's somebody who knows what he's for. He's not just pitting one socioeconomic class or one race against another race. He's saying, we belong together and, and, and we have a future together. And we need to recognize that when something is wrong with, with one group of us, something is wrong with all of us. Now that is a transcendent sense of purpose, you see? And I'm ready to sign up. I'm ready to say, all right, put me to work. Where can I go to work in that kind of kingdom, John Perkins, versus some of his, some of his compatriots that have come out of the civil rights movement and have used the civil rights platform to build their own ambitious empire. It's incredibly corrosive, poisonous, See, what was happening when uh, Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, he, he had this passion to see the kingdom of Israel restored. And because he knew that it was more than just a time and place, because he knew what he was for, 
So many people enlisted to the cause. Think of the gates all the way around and think of the people who were in charge of those different parts of, of Jerusalem. You'll see throughout the rest of, of Nehemiah, when you read, you'll, you'll, you'll come up across these people that I call the guardians of the rubble. Even though the wall is rubble, it's our rubble and you can't put it back together, right? The status quo people. They feel threatened by anything that's different or changing or, or building. But because Nehemiah, because his purpose was transcendent, people rallied to the cause. And so, so his whole organizational approach was strategic. He just went around to the different places in Jerusalem and said, you're living here, you know what's going on in this area, you know the people, your neighbors, can you take charge of this gate? Can you rebuild this gate? Can you deal with the politics of this area? And, can you? and so he empowered the people because he had a powerful purpose. He brought value into it. He was a life-giving spirit. He wasn't using people for the task, he was using the task develop people and it all goes back to a passion that's bigger than you it all goes back to a passion that's a transcendent cause it all goes back to not just aiming at earth but aiming at heaven and getting earth thrown in and so to have a legacy to have a legacy means knowing who you are and that having that sense of identity that we talked about last week. But it also means knowing what your passion is. That particular place, that, that deep sense of suffering for something, a burden for the world that isn't the way it should be because of the transcendent cause, the kingdom of God that needs to be in our midst even greater than it is today. Jesus fixed his eyes on the cross and we're to fix our eyes on him. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. You see the passion? The suffering of Jesus had on the other side of it, you. His joy was not going to be complete apart from restoring you to the kingdom. His joy drove him that transcendent cause drove him through. The most excruciating death. What's your passion? Can you put your finger on it? Can you think this makes my joy complete? I can see others around me flourishing because of my pursuit. I can see how it's a win-win for the people in my life who would divide us. I can see how it's a compelling picture 
of a preferred future together.